Hello there, Glocal Citizens. I'm Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I am, again, still in New York, but only for this last episode. I'm headed back to Africa. Hooray, hooray, hooray. But I'm speaking with Africa. I'm speaking with a very uh, dynamic communications and media professional, Miss Esata Sidibe Ndia. Isn't that melodic? She is the founder and president of Yelemba, which is Women in Action, an NGO focused on empowering women and girls through service. She has been a communication specialist with development institutions like the AECF, which is the Africa Enterprise Challenge Fund, and the IMF. We all know that as the International Monetary Fund. And she also runs the platform femafrique.com. And that is a news and media website that has more than 2.7 million followers, and where she hosts an interview series highlighting the accomplishments of enterprising women. Aisata, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Florence. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. So tell us more about where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft? Okay, where am I from? So, you know, I often get this question and it's always confusing for me because I don't know myself where I'm really from because I have so many different... Okay, let me explain to make it easy. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I was born in Chad, which is Central Africa. And then my parents... Actually, my dad was posted there for a two-year assignment. So when I was born there, we then eventually left Chad and moved back to the US because he was working in the the United States. He was based in the United States. Okay. Um, So, yes? So is your father from Chad? No, my father, okay. my parents are both from Mali. So, okay, okay. <laughs> yes. I was coming. Uh, so, my parents are both from Mali. So, like I said, born in Chad, moved to the United States from Malian parents, but I never actually lived in Mali. Okay. When I was 10 years old, we left the United States and we moved to Senegal. Okay. So, I spent most of my formative years in Senegal because I was there from 10 to 17 years old. And then I moved to France. So, I finished high school in France. Okay. And I spent about three years in France before coming back to the United States, where I did my higher education, university, and then started working eventually at the IMF. And then I left the United States, I want to say, what is it, maybe about 19 years later, 2015, I moved to Ivory Coast because my husband is from Ivory Coast. And so I moved to Ivory Coast and I'm now an Ivorian citizen as well as a okay. Because my husband is also French. So French by marriage and French and Ivorian by marriage now. Okay. Wow. (laughs) You you could have four passports. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. Or five, because you could have have had a U.S. Yes. Wow. I want to say even Senegal because I, you know, I spent years in Senegal and then also France and Ivory Coast. Okay. Hello. Another very world. I would. Yes. Another global citizen. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So right now you're local in Cote d'Ivoire. Yes. Okay. I'm local in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire. Like I said, um, in 2015, actually it was end 2015. So I want to say almost 2016, we moved to Abidjan where my husband has his business. So I basically followed him in a sense because he Okay. he had his business. He created his business, his company in in late nineties, early two thousand. And the good thing is, it's an IT company, so he was able to work remotely, remotely. right, mm-hmm. from the United States for a, a very long period of time. And then, you know, business was booming for him. Irish Post was doing better, 
And so mm. we decided to move back. We did a first attempt in 2008, but the situation didn't go quite well. I'm not sure if you know, but yes. Is, um, yes. There was political, for my listeners, there was political exactly. there was struggle with that. Exactly, mm-hmm. in 2000. Um, so we arrived in 2000, I want to say late 2008, early 2009. We had to leave in 2010, end of 2010, when the, the unrest mm-hmm. started, end of 2010, early right. 2011. So we went back to the U.S. at that time. And then yeah. came back in 2016 and have been here since. Okay, nice, nice, nice. So um, it's interesting. At that time, I was in Ghana Mm -hmm. in 2010, and we had a rental property, Mm -hmm. and we had all these inquiries from people coming from Cote d'Ivoire because, you know, everyone was kind of basically, if you could, you were getting out. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had a family, a very nice family that rented our our home for about a year. Mm -hmm. And I think, no, maybe, I think it was two years, and then they went back. Exactly. Yeah. Because the unrest, I mean, thankfully, it didn't last too long. It was actually, Three months, three to four months of intense fighting, and then eventually mm-hmm. calmed down and things stabilized by, I want to say, May, May, June, things were calm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, it takes time after you've been through this. Exactly. It takes at least two, three years to really get back on track. Exactly. So, right. So a lot of people yeah. stayed longer than, you know, two years abroad. But then, you know, people who really just left because of the unrest really came, a lot of them came back who didn't have mm-hmm. By that time, you know, I was on leave without pay from the IMF. So I was oh. able, thankfully, yes. And I actually had to let them know by 2011 if I was leaving completely, right. come, if I was going to come back. And at the time I decided, you know, we decided that it was smarter to go back because of the yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, and then eventually if we had to come back, we would, you know, we would advise them. But yeah. Got it. Got it. So speaking of being on leave from the IMF, mm-hmm. tell us about your craft. Okay. So, you know, communication is in a sense, my craft, but I didn't, well, my mom says I did, but I don't think I <laughs> She said, when you used to be a kid, you used to, you used to sit in front of the TV and watch all these reporters and take a micro and act like you were, you had a microphone and speak like they did. So it's, I think unconsciously, perhaps I always wanted to be in communications, but, yes. you know, but I didn't actually do, I didn't actually study communications in, okay. in university. When I, when I went to school, when I came back to the U.S. for school, I actually went into economics because okay. I, I wanted to work at the IMF. I wanted to work at the IMF. So I said, you know, what do I need to get into the IMF? So it was a goal. I said, what do I need? I said, I need to study economics, obviously. So I went to University of Maryland, College Park, and I studied economics. Okay. And then I graduated with a, degra, a bachelor's degree in economics. And then I went to the IMF and I said, you know, I have an economics degree. I want a job. But of course, it's not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, well, we don't have anything for you right now. But what we can offer you is, you know, they had a position, a research assistant position in the diversity office. And so I said, I'll take it. Don't you don't have to ask twice. And so I worked with the diversity advisor for about a year, helping her with everything. You know, of course, the IMF is a very diverse institution, 187 at the time, at least, member countries. And so, you know, we're working with a lot of different nationalities and people from different backgrounds, cultures, and, you know, and all that. So, you know, and she was just starting, you know, diversity as, at the time was taking more. And right, more. right. It was, yeah, it was uh, just new. It was yeah. taking off, right. It was, you know, and so this was, for her, it was also new. And so, you know, I worked with her, helping her, you know, doing all the research and getting data, compiling data and writing reports, speaking to economists. You know, at the time, there was an issue with 
African economists not getting promotions as much as, you know, other economists and things like that. So we were compiling the data, you know, and trying to put those into reports and things like that, translate mm-hmm. that into reports, I should say. And so it was very interesting. And but eventually, you know, she only needed a person for a certain amount of time. So then I had to move on. And I was looking within the institution, where can I find something, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and a job came up in the communications department. They were looking for a communications assistant. And mm. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> right. You know, I'll take it. And I actually moved to the communications department. At the time, it was the external relations department. Okay. To the external relations department. I took a position in the uh, media relations as a media relations assistant. And what I basically did was the morning press. So it was very early morning hours, uh, waking up at 5.30 in the morning, searching news, you know, three hours. And then we had to put out a report, you know, with all the latest news for the staff, for the management and staff. And so it wasn't. That's great training. It is. It is. It really was. I was right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it. And so it was absolutely great training, but it's also very stressful because you're under yes. pressure because, you know, mm-hmm. you have to deliver this because we had to put it out at eight sharp every day. So mm-hmm. 5.30 a.m. you had to be online. We had a database. We had a news database that we had to go through. And then you also have to go through different news websites and things like that in case, you know, because especially for, you know, foreign countries, which were not listed in that database, you had to go through, you know, all these different newspapers ah, from yeah. different countries things like that yeah. and make sure you got, you know, main headlines and things like that. I want to say it was very stressful, but it was like it was a wonderful experience. And I have to say, I never regretted it. It gave me that not strength, but it gave me that. I guess you it, not draw. I don't want to say draw. It gave me that that grit. Kind of a, that, sure, exactly. Right. The, right? the discipline you, to, exactly, yeah. to push forward, yes. to really yes. you know, keep looking for the news, because, you know, it, you would also get in trouble if. You know, a headline, you, missed something. You, missed, mm-hmm. you missed it and, you know, management would come back to you and they knew us. They knew all of us. It was a very small. Group. It was only four of us. <laughs> so they knew, you know, well, you guys, you didn't see this or, you know. And so so we really had to, we really had to be on top of things. It was very, yeah. small, but it was great. It was great. I have to say it was great. Yeah. Wow. Years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. OK. So then so you always knew that community. Well, intuitively, your soul knew that communications yeah. Was, yeah. was who you were going to be. And, who and you were going I to think become. after that is when I. You know, I like communication. And then mm-hmm. I, I also worked in public affairs. Eventually I did, I basically did almost every single department, uh, sorry, division in communications. So I did okay. public affairs. I did, like I said, media relations. I did internal communications. Mm-hmm. I did publications. So I worked almost everywhere within the communication department. And right. I usually did about two years, two, two and a half years in each division. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you you I had a. I became a <laughs> expert. Yes, yeah. I think you're always growing. You're always learning. That's true. Definitely. That's true. Yeah. And then I went back to do a master's in. Um, I did my MBA in 2000 while I was at the IMF from 2006 to 2000. I graduated in 2008. Okay. Um, I did a, a master in business administration from the University of Maryland as well. Okay. And so, and you know, the reason why, and then people always told me, why didn't you do communications? At the time you were already in communications, you knew, mm-hmm. you know, you like communications, but I said, I felt like communication might just limit me. I mean, if I did only mm-hmm. communications, I felt mm-hmm. like I may want to run a business one day and, you know, sure, right. you know background yeah. as well. Right. So yeah. I felt like you could always do for communication. You can always do training as opposed to just, you know, studying because, you know, there's so right. much stuff now. I mean, you know, imagine all the social media that we didn't used to have. 
Sure. And you don't necessarily need to go to school for that, but you definitely need some type of training. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was important to have to be able to then, you know, if I did want to have a management position, eventually have Mm -hmm. an MBA. A different thing. Sure. 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 Okay. Makes perfect sense because it's serving you well. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) so tell us about your experience, like in terms of moving and your experience moving, particularly from your Senegalese experience to France, because Mm you, until then you had been an African child. Yes. Yes. Well, an American, an American. An American. Right. Because when I arrived, actually, you know, to to be honest, when I arrived in Africa, uh, when I was Mm -hmm. 10, it was a culture shock for me. I mean, yeah. I came, I was 10 years old already, because 10 years old, you're, you know, yeah, you know who you are. Yeah, a little bit. You know, you, you know you're used to your American life, mm-hmm. your American foods, to <laughs> your American yes. clothes. And, yes. You know, <laughs> not to say that, you know, to be honest, our parents exposed us to Africa very early. So we spent all our summers in Mali. Okay. Um, like I said, I never lived in Mali, but I spent but all you spent time. I spent all okay. my summers in Mali. I spoke the language fluently. I still do. Okay. My, my mom, that's all my mom spoke to us at a home, even when we were in the U.S. Oh, nice. Yeah. So which language? Which language Ombara. is that? Ombara. Ombara. Okay. Is, it's similar to Jula that they speak in Ivory Coast and Malenki. Okay. Speak in, okay. In, so it's spoken in a lot of West, West African countries, specifically Burkina Faso, Mali, sure. Ivory Coast, Senegal, not so much, but Guinea. 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 Okay. Senegal's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. one mainly. So, yeah, so, you know, it's spoken in a lot of different countries, but that was one thing that she really transmitted to us is the language. Mm. Only she refused to speak French to us. No French, no English. If you want to speak to mom, you have to speak in Bombard, where she doesn't answer. So we had- Good for her. Yep. So we were able to really pick it up. All of my sisters, I have four sisters, we all speak fluently. So it's not a shock when we go to Mali. But anyway, coming back to your question, and when I moved from the U.S. to Senegal, like I said, it was a bit of a culture shock. It was hard. It was hard integrating because, you know, I don't know, but all these people in my school, they were all so cool. You know, I thought I was going to be in the U.S. and, you know, I'd be the one showing everyone everything. And it was like, oh my God, no, not really. You're not the in girl. You're not the in girl. So it was like, okay, I'm not the in girl, but okay. But, you know, it was, really, it was not what I expected at all. But eventually, you know, I adapted, of course, and made lots of friends. And I love living in Senegal. I still love Senegal. And I visit whenever yes. I can. I have lots of Senegalese friends. I yes. have I speak a little bit of Wolof. And, okay. you know, so uh, Senegal is in my heart. I really should have gotten the passport, but. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I really love my Senegalese experience. So, yeah. and then like uh, coming back to what you said again, going to France. Going to France was not so much, you know, France has always been in our culture, especially in West Africa, Francophone West Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had been to France on vacation. I already okay. knew France a little bit. My sisters sure. were being there already. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's a natural transition. You know how it is right. with our, yeah. <laughs> our yes. colonizers. Mm-hmm. You know, you usually go to France to study for Ghanaian, mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. for Nigerians. It's the UK. For us, it's France. For Mali, Malians. Yes. And, you know, Ivorians, Senegalese, you know, you go to France. You're one higher education, you go to France. For me, it was a little bit different. I eventually went to the U.S. because, you know, I had that U.S. background. I spoke English mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was easier. But at the time, I had very few friends who wanted to migrate to the U.S. Uh, mm. Most of them were going to France. You know, a few eventually came to the U.S. But most people, you know, it was really at the time it was France. France was very popular for studies. It still is, by the okay. way. 
Yeah. Although yeah. now, you know, people are looking at more, you know, because we're in such a global world, right? So everybody mm-hmm. wants to learn English as well. Because, right. Like if you don't right. have English, right. you know, you're missing out. So, you know, a lot of people are now moving to the UK and the US for studies. But yeah, so moving to France, I mean, it wasn't so much. I have to say, I didn't like it so much. <laughs> where? So what, where were you in France? Were you in Paris? I was in the south of France. No, I was south. in the south of France. Aix-en-Provence, it's called. It's a city okay. not, not far from Marseille. I mean, the South is very nice. Provence is it's a beautiful, you know, it's beautiful. The environment is beautiful. Everything's beautiful city. But I felt like it wasn't giving me what I needed. I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't growing in that environment. Okay, right. And so sure. eventually, because I did one year of university in France, I attended mm-hmm. the University of Aix-Marseille, and it didn't really work out. I just... I don't know. I couldn't, I didn't fit. I didn't right. Fit. It wasn't for you there. Yeah. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. I wasn't driving. It wasn't good for me. So I eventually moved to the U.S. At first, my parents did not like the idea at all. Of uh-huh. <laughs> we'll go back to the stories of how I came to the U.S., but I came to the U.S. <laughs> I ended up in Washington, D.C., back in Washington, D.C., and I told my dad, this is what is for me. He said, okay, well, we will see. You know, at first, you know, they were very angry with me because they felt like, you know, you started in France, you need to finish in France. Yes. And then, you know, we had, we clashed a little bit at that point where mm-hmm. we butt heads. And, but eventually, I mean, I showed them that, you know, this is really what I want. I came to the U.S. I even got a job. You know, I started working part time. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have to send me any money. So, you know, I think they saw that I was, I was not going to budge. And so yeah. I figured, okay, but if you're going to go to school, then that's fine. And so that's what ended up happening. So I okay school and, and, and all that. And they and, and they then, paid for the schooling, thank God. Because yeah. <laughs> it would have been hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Take care of myself, but that was about it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Thankfully in the end we were able to come to an agreement and yeah, and that's when I, I started my schooling there. So it sounds like your father was a diplomat. Yes, my dad was actually, you know, I should have said that, but my dad mm-hmm. used to work at the IMF. Okay. okay. Why he used to work. So my dad arrived in the U.S. in 1967. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And he started working at the IMF. And when we left in 85, he was working for the Central Bank of West African State, States, which okay. is headquartered in Senegal, which is why we moved into Senegal. Okay. And so, yeah, you know, working for the IMF, I think that was a dream that I had when I used to visit my father at the IMF and I used to see the building. I was like, I want to work here, you know, visiting him, going to lunch there with my mom and and my sisters. And, you know, it was so huge and all these flags. I was just impressed. And I was like, I want to work here. So I think it was a childhood dream. And I felt like, you know, and once again, you know, but the funny thing is it was a childhood dream and I did the, I went to school, I studied economics, but then in the end, you know, I didn't do economics at the, at the IMF. I ended up doing mm-hmm. communications, right? So mm-hmm. I guess somehow what I wanted to do found me in a way. I, I don't know if I, I should say I found it or it found me, but yeah. know, in a sense, I found my way. Um, Got it. Was communicating, Got it. Which wasn't really necessarily uh, economics. Okay. Yeah, it's the right path. So this is where I ask my guests the kind of why, the where, and you've given us a lot about how you've come to be living in Cote d'Ivoire and Abidjan, but I want to get a better sense of how you yourself found your footing because you you mentioned that you followed your husband, Mm -hmm. you left your work at the IMF. So how was that relocation process for you as a wife? I don't know if you were a mother by that time, but so how was that and how did you find your footing? So I'll be honest. I had two children by the time we left the U.S., in 2016. Mm-hmm. 
my son was born in 2008 and then my daughter in 2010. And so that was part of the decision as well to leave because in terms of schooling, it was becoming complicated. You know, we weren't, we didn't live, we wanted our, our kids to go to the French school. It was far from the house. The commuting was complicated. We felt like, you know, we felt like eventually <laughs> we had to find a way to move back to Africa. And so yeah. unconsciously, it was always there that we would eventually move to Africa. Like I said, we had done that first stint in 2008, which didn't work out. And then yeah. we came back. So for me, I had a career, but I felt like I can do what I do almost anywhere. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like if I leave now, you know, everything is going to, you know, I won't be able to do anything anymore. I still felt that I could achieve even if I, you know, left the IMF. And mm-hmm. so that's why I think it made it a little bit easier to leave. Also, you know, I think when I married, my husband and I, we made the decision that, you know, we, we will live together. You know? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, some people, they decide yes. for financial reasons. Okay. You mm-hmm. stay here, I stay there and, you know, mm-hmm. here. But we always felt like we would we need to stay together. So the choices were made that way, because when we first married, my husband, he was about to leave. He had just finished his studies. He went to Indiana University. He had finished his studies and he wanted to go back to Ivory Coast. And Mm -hmm. in a sense, he stayed because of me. Also, there was uh, political instability in the Ivory Coast at the time as well. So that's another. But I think for the main part, he stayed because, you know, we were together and we were married. We were there. I had a job. You know, he also Mm -hmm. had a company which was growing. But, you know, I want to say that it was, you know, it was mainly because of me, because I had a yes. stable job, you know, I enjoyed right. the job and, you know, mm-hmm. we were able to, you know, live there and it wasn't a problem. And he was able to do his job from a distance, from remotely. And so that's how we were able to, you know, we stayed in the U.S. for a while. And then eventually, you know, we figured, OK, let's try. And, you know, because I knew for him, too, it was important. His company was growing. And, you know, if you want opportunities, obviously, you need to be in the country. So yes, he would go back exactly. and forth once in a while. Yeah, he would go back and forth once in a while. And then finally, you know, we said 2008, let's try it. And so we tried it. It didn't work out. We went back to the U.S. Thankfully, I still had my job. He was still able to work remotely. So, you know, we continued. But in the back of our minds, we always knew eventually we're going back home. Right. Yes. So, so I think when we came in 2016, it was a little difficult, I have to say, in the beginning, because I had mm-hmm. never really worked in Africa. Okay, right. Experience working in Africa. So for me, it was (laughs) a big shock. (laughs) Yeah. I want to say a big, different from the shock when I was a 10 year old and, you know, I was not the it girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This was, uh, oh my God, can I do this? Because, you know, first of all, even the language, I mean, yes, I spoke French fluently, but, you know, if you haven't worked in French, it's different, right? Because. Yes. Speaking and writing professionally is different from, you know, speaking with your friends and, you know, speaking yes. with it's, it's very, very different. So I had to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. I had to learn quickly. I had to learn the mentality of people mm-hmm. and which is mm-hmm. very different, especially because when I started working, I worked for, I mean, we worked with the MCC, but it was and the MCC is a millennium millennial challenge, millennial uh, challenge corporation, millennium yes. challenge corporation. Mm-hmm. But we were the national part. So we were on the national side. Okay. Right. So we worked with the government of Ivory Coast. So basically, I worked for the government of Ivory Coast, working oh, okay. with the MPC mm-hmm. to develop yeah. the program. Right. So I worked as a communication expert at the time. And so, you know, it was really working with 
public sector in Africa. Right, right. And that is a real culture shock. Yes. <laughs> so it was leaving the IMF, which is very institutionalized and very, right. everything is very hierarchical and, and, you know, you know what to do. Everybody knows what to do. And, you know, everybody's professional, everybody. So to come into, I don't want to say that public sector is not, you know, but you know what I mean. You see, you know, the uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was difficult. It was difficult, but I think it was an experience I had to go through to understand mm-hmm. the mentality mm-hmm. and to understand the environment. Because I think it was a wonderful experience in terms of learning about the country, about Ivory Coast, about, mm-hmm. you know, especially at the time, you know, we were working on the, uh, the program. We were at the time, you know, we didn't got through the compact program, but we were working towards getting the compact program. Okay. It's a program that is, you know, it's a grant that is given by MCC, but then you have to work towards it. You know, you don't just get it, right? Right, right, right. So basically you were working on structuring the actual... With the team. Um, implementation. Team. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. With the team who was working on structuring the implementation. It was an excellent mm-hmm. experience because, you know, I learned everything that had to do with Ivory Coast. I mean, uh, <laughs> I remember speaking with my husband at the time and he would say, how do you know all this? How do you know that? Ah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a project in this area or there's this. Or, and he was always amazed because he was like, you know, Ivory Coast in and out now. You know, I yes. had ministries and I knew what they did. I knew people in different minutes. So, you know, it was very good. I mean, and I also built a lot of contacts, a lot of connections. So that was really good. You know, so it was it was a transition I had to go through. It wasn't easy. I'm not going to say it was easy. It wasn't easy, but it was a wonderful learning experience, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm glad I went through that. So, yeah. And that's actually how we met. So mm-hmm. you really yes, did know. Yes, 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 yes. You were the connector. You really helped. You did me a solid with, with helping with that project. So we met. I went to a conference in Ivory Coast. It was an education. It was the Africa America Institute. There was an education conference. And I was there because I was doing distribution for a documentary. Mm-hmm. And so I just needed to meet people and know people. And I happened on Miss Aisata, and here I am. I was yeah. able to do it very well. We did it actually very well. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. So speaking of being local and being in Ivory Coast, this is where I ask my Glocal Speak question. Mm-hmm. So we want to know what you hear. So I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how it, you came to value it as a Glocal Speak. Yes, something that people say often in Ivory Coast and that I've picked up now. I didn't used to say this, but now I say it all the time. And for me, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you know, we always say savali, which is in French, of course, but it means yes. everything is going to be fine. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, I think it's very African mentality, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. know, even when a situation is terrible, right? We say it's going to be fine, right? Right. It's this faith that we have, you know, yes. as Africans. Right. And yes. it's really cultural because, you know, in the United States, it's, things are falling apart. Nobody is going to say it's going to be fine. <laughs> you know, everybody's upset right. Right. Running all over the place. You know, it's just a terrible situation. But here people have this faith, this, this belief that, you know, whatever happens, it's God's will and it's mm-hmm. going to be fine. Right. Mm-hmm. So and I actually I think I really like that. And a lot of times it makes me feel better in a sense. Right. Because whatever the situation mm-hmm. we make me you know that it's going to be okay. Eventually, right. it, will be okay. it may not be okay right now. Obviously, you're saying that to make yourself feel better. But you know that eventually things will fall into place. Eventually, everything will be fine. 
Sure, sure. And I, I agree with that. I think that you said it's just this faith in the us mm-hmm. of the world, right? So we can right. persevere. So yeah, I love that too. Like we have sayings like that in Ghana, but I think it's definitely cultural. Like definitely Africans have mm-hmm. this, it's, you know, what can we do? It's going to be okay. That's all we can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. In the beginning, I, it used to annoy me because it was like, well, no, we need to do this and we need to do that. And then yeah. I eventually understood the meaning of it. It's not that we're not going to do this and that. It's just that calm down. Just take a deep breath. It's going uh-huh. to be okay. Uh-huh. You know, find uh-huh. solutions, but just focus on the problem and just, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. So and now I, I use it a lot, <laughs> which is, <laughs> in the beginning I was like, ah, now I'm like, yes, Savali. Which Savali. is really, yeah, Savali, Savali. So, yes. you know, so now I tend to use that myself. And so I, you're, mm-hmm. you're definitely local. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's been five years now, can I say? Right, 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 right. So I want to get more into the work that you're doing now. So we talked yes. about, you know, your, your past life. So let's talk about what you're doing now. So you are the founder of a not for, an NGO, not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to, to that work? Okay, so this is a very personal story. How I came to this work is a very personal story. Because when I told you I when I first moved to Ivory Coast, I didn't necessarily see eye to eye with my boss, right? And I felt that a lot of times I was not necessarily being supported, right? To mm-hmm. find a resolution. It was very difficult. It was for me it was a very difficult situation. And you know, when I was working there, I felt to myself, I felt, okay, and I'm a person, I'm I have connections, I know people, I'm resourceful. And mm-hmm. I can't find a solution to this problem. Imagine somebody who's not connected, who's not resourceful, you know, who's just a simple person. How do they deal with issues that they have? And for me, that was a question I pondered on for a long time. And it came out to be, I feel like I need to help other people, other people who are in situations where they don't have much, you know, they don't know people, they are not resourceful. How can we help them? How can we, for example, and it was very specific in the beginning. It was more for example, for people who work in companies or businesses, young women, young men who are in a situation where they, they find themselves, you know, against their boss or their superior superior being harassed or things like that, but there's no recourse. And that's yeah. probably, that's one of the issues in Africa. A lot of right. times, the hierarchy in private sector in institution makes it that people don't have recourse. Exactly. Like you say, go see human resources. You go to human resources, but human resources is really not going to do anything for you because you know, they're really working for the boss. Everybody is working for them. And everyone is afraid of the boss. Exactly. So if you have a problem, you just, I mean, I don't want to say it like this, but you just need to shut up and deal with it. Yeah. No or leave. Can. Yeah, exactly. And most, and most can't leave because they need money. Because they need a paycheck. They need that mm-hmm. job. They need that money. They, you know, they don't have any other mean, financial means. And so, you know, for me, that was terrible because I was thinking, okay, I have recourses, right? I have People I know, I can talk to other people who can perhaps talk to my boss and things like that. But imagine somebody who has no recourse. What did he right. do? I mean, for me, yeah. and I was suffering. And so I'm thinking, imagine those other people. What would they be going through? And so in the beginning, we wanted to do, and I spoke to a group of friends and, you know, I, I explained my situation and I was telling them, you know, I think we need to do something for people. You know, we had this meeting. I called all my friends and I said, you know, let's come up with ideas of what we can do. And in my mind, what I really wanted to do was mediation, right? Mm-hmm. Like create like mm-hmm. a mediation association where we intervene for people in job settings where they're having difficulties with their bosses or their superiors or their colleagues even, you know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was my first idea. But then, you know, you put a group of eight women together and <laughs> 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 it morphs into something else, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we ended up saying, 
oh, maybe we can save the children or maybe we can, you know, so it went into all these different directions. And I had to tell them, ladies, let's focus, right? (laughs) Yes, I know we, everybody here wants to save the world, but we need to focus. We need to come up with something where we make an impact, where we really, you know, we give back and, you know, and all that. So it really started with that meeting. It really, really started that with that meeting that we had in April, 2018, where we sat down. It was, I think we were eight or 10 women. I'm not, I don't remember, but we sat down and we decided that we had to do something. We didn't know what at the time, right? The first meeting we ended up saying, okay, we'll do something. We don't know yet what we will do. Will it be an association? Will it, will it be a nonprofit? We didn't know the format, but we knew we had to do something. And so eventually, you know, we started meeting regularly and we came up with the NGO and then we decided, you know what, let's do it for women. We're women, you know, where and now, especially now, you know, women are, you know, the movement is everywhere. Rising, so right. Ever, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we said, let's do, I mean, and then the other thing was also that we felt that we, most of the women in the group, we felt that we were privileged, right? We had parents who were able to pay for our schooling. We were, you know, we all have an education. We're all married. Well, not all married, but we all, you know, have some type of support. Right. We have jobs. We have children. We have to give back somehow because some people are not privileged. And it's important for us as privileged to give back. If we don't give back, who will give back? Yeah, so that was also one of the main foundations of, you know, the creation of this NGO was nice to give back. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. So since then, so that was in 2018. Mm-hmm. Since then, you have grown. Yes. And grown. established. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about some of the projects that you've been involved in. Yeah. So we basically what we decided to do. So we said we want to do women empowerment. We also wanted to do a lot of awareness raising. I'm not. I'm never sure how to say this in English. Uh-huh, in, uh-huh. in French, you would say sensibilisation, which is you. Yes. Uh, it's raising awareness, basically. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of that with the young girls. We also do what we call autonomisation. Autonomisation is helping women to um, be independent. To be independent. There's not a perfect translated word for sure. Right. But it, yeah. it's empowerment in a sense. It's to empower sure. women to become more independent. Right. So that's also another thing that we wanted to do. So what we do is, like I said, we do, we mentor young girls as well. Mm-hmm. So empowerment through mentoring and raising awareness. Okay. And then, how would I say this? Now I wish I could speak French. <laughs> <laughs> no, so say it in French. <laughs> See what I could translate. Let's say empowerment. Let's just put sure. it all in empowerment, but exactly. these are mentoring. So we mentor young girls. Yes. So what ages are, do you, do you find them in high school? Like what, where do you uh, start? Okay. So we mentor young entrepreneur, entrepreneur okay. women, and we mentor students, but students, university students type, Okay. you know, so not in high school. No. Sure. What we've done okay. so far is university students, as well as young entrepreneurs. Right. Right. And then we also do, we have a, currently we're working in a village and this was really, it was totally random. We ended up in that village in a random fashion, but then we ended up working with them, with the women there. So we wanted to do an activity at the end of the year, at the end of 2018, we said, okay, we created this NGO. Let's do something at least. Right. And so we we wanted to do like a Christmas activity for children. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that we do also. We also do that. We don't do as much as, because we feel like, you know, teach people how to fish is better than than, you know, giving them the fish, right? Right. So yeah. we like to do the, comment dit caritatif, like the donations and the mm-hmm. giving, the giving part, but we try to avoid that as much as possible. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, like I said, especially now. Yeah, you want, you want to make impact that's lasting. Thank you. 
So, but we said, you know, let's do this little activity for the end of the year. We'll give gifts to the children. So we ended up there. We did like a Christmas tree. We gave gifts to the children in the village. And then we spoke to the women and they were all so happy. They told us, oh, we should work together. And we said, oh yeah, definitely we can work together. And so we started working with these women. Another program we worked on was the Women Wake Up. And Women Wake Up was a program that we did in, in the village of Adumangan, which is part of the Jacqueville commune or, you know, bigger city. And so Women Wake Up, we did it with the Embassy of the United States and the Yali program. And it was really to teach women. So we brought a lot of different speakers, women entrepreneurs uh, who had succeeded from nothing, right? This lady from Cameroon, she she worked at the market. She created her own business. Now she has a restaurant. She sells fish. So anyway, just to say that we brought a lot of different speakers who inspired the women, who spoke to the women. We did uh, sessions, different sessions for them. And it was about 200 women, 150. Okay, wow. Wow, that's it. Yes, yes, yes. And so I love this project because in the end, it really, you could feel the results. It was tangible because we came back to the women after six months because we had told them, you know, we're leaving you with, you know, all this, these shared experiences, you know, all these testimonials, you know, what can you do, you know, on your part? What do you feel that you can do? And so when we came back six, I think it was four, four months later, they came to us and they told us, they actually called us and told us, you need to come and see us because we want to tell you what we've been doing. And so we went to see them and they had started, I don't want to say microfinance, but like a savings program. Okay. Maybe They're, kind of like a susu, but not a susu where everyone puts in and then yes, they can Yes, but a little it. bit different because there's the, I wanted, yes, but also microfinance type a little bit sure. because Sure. Because there, there were interest rates, you know, in a sense. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So you sophisticated. Borrow, yeah. you, you can borrow. Yeah, very sophisticated. There's a young man who runs the program in the neighboring villages. And, you know, they called him and told him, you know, we spoke to these ladies and now we want to join, you know, because we feel that we can do for ourselves. And mm-hmm. so they joined. And by the time I left there, I think they had saved up to already. They were up to about $2,000 that they had put together. And you can borrow against the money, you know, as, but you can borrow up to a certain amount and it's based on what you put in. Right. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Okay. So, so you no, know, it was, I mean, it was amazing. We were really impressed. We were so yeah. happy because, you know, that, that's the whole point of doing this is really teaching people, telling them you can do it on your own. You don't, because, you know, one of the things that came out when we went to do this program, they were telling us, we need money. We want to do this. We, you know, it's always, we need money. And we told them, yes you know, you already make money because most of them have small activities, right? They, so they do, you know, they sell, they sell food stuff. They sell, you know, they sell different things. So a lot of them have small activities. And so we felt like this is just a matter of changing the way you think. It's not the, mm-hmm. it's the mindset mm-hmm. that you change. Mm-hmm. Just have mm-hmm. to see how can I do it myself? You know, get into a group, put money, you know, and then borrow against them. So it was just, you know, they came together and they, I mean, we didn't tell them what to do. I mean, they right. you just, so, yeah. Right. We you basically them. gave them all the tools though. Yeah. Like yeah. you all here. So they, just, yeah. they just did it. And so we were, I mean, we were ecstatic. We were happy. We were excited. You know, we went to see them. We actually even made a donation to, okay. to the fund because we felt like, okay, you know, you're really doing this. So we're going to yeah. add to, you know, give you a little something to encourage you. And so it was very exciting. Very, very exciting to see wow. that your efforts are being re- re- rewarded in a sense. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, and we also, speak- mm-hmm. just quickly, just to tell you, we also built a school for them. For the okay. 
because they mm-hmm. have, but this is something, you know, cause we, we, like we said, we don't really, I mean, it's not that we don't work for children, but we do, we mainly do for women, but you can't separate women and children, obviously. Right. Yeah. And they wanted us, they had started a building, not really started anything. It was just four walls, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they had mm-hmm. started some type of construction. And they told us, we just need your help to finish this building. Please help us finish the school so we can put our kids there and then we can actually go and do our activities. Because you know, when, right. kids, are, when kids are two, three, four, there's no kindergarten. The kids don't go yeah. to six years exactly. old in primary. Yeah. And you can imagine yeah. babysitting. You know, exactly. you can't leave a two-year-old, a three-year-old or a four or five-year-old unattended. So, mm-hmm. And so we helped them finish the school. We just recently finished the school. We gave them the keys. We're doing the inauguration in February. Oh, wonderful. If COVID allows. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. If Speaking of, how is the situation in Cote d'Ivoire? You know, in Africa, it's uh, very... So how was it there? Say, well, we were doing well until Christmas. Okay. <laughs> holiday mm-hmm. season just, I think people just felt like yeah. to be with family. We had a lot right. of people coming from abroad. Mm-hmm. This melting pot of people, you know, having parties, doing events. And it's, mm-hmm. January was terrible. It's a terrible. It's terrible. I mean, yeah. and they're actually thinking of confinement again. A lockdown. Yeah. I think that's across the um, the board because I'm hearing that in Ghana as well. Like there's this new wear your mask, wear your mask, everyone, you know, and, you know, you point to leadership. I mean, we saw what leadership at fault did in the U.S., you know, all the highest level of deaths. Mm-hmm. Same thing in South America. So African leaders really have to because they, too, were partying and, they, you know, you saw it on the media. So it's like, oh, if our leaders are doing it, then we can do it, too. And that's where it all falls down. So how are you funding the NGO? What we do, we do a lot of fundraising. Okay. We essentially do fundraising. So we fund ourselves through fundraising, essentially. We have okay. we pay our, all of our administrative costs through dues, through members. Okay. So we don't okay. touch the donations that we get. We really try to avoid touching the donations for anything that's administrative. Okay. When I say administrative, I mean we have an assistant, for example, to help sure. with the NGO, the day-to-day and then we accounting, accounting things like that things like that exactly anytime we we have any type of administrative fees we use our dues okay and then but for everything else for anything that has to do with the donations and things like that we raise funds and we do events for example mm-hmm. last time we had an event was in March of 2008 we did the Yelimba market and we okay. had all these women we had a market we basically did a marketplace and we had women come and sell okay and they gave us uh, 10% of their profits, which we felt, oh, okay. was, oh, by the way, but this time we're going to, when we do it this March, we might try to raise it a little bit, do maybe 15%. Yeah. But that was yeah. very helpful. And then we also do a lot of just informal fundraising where we have people, you know, they know about our NGO and mm-hmm. they give us money. And then we did a, a larger fundraising more recently for the school. Okay. So that was very targeted. We did a campaign. We raised okay. funds. Uh, we raised funds even in the U.S. I mean, we, we had a GoFundMe page. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that. And then we also did a whole website page on our website in Ivory Coast. And we, we got a lot of funds, actually. So we, that's how okay. we finished the school. Yeah, wonderful. So we did a formal, a more formal fundraiser. So very grassroots. Mm-hmm. Yes, very grassroots. But you know, the yes. thing is because it's a group, we're 15 women in this group, 15 women. Okay. So you've grown. 15, mm-hmm. Yes, we've grown 15 women and 15 women who all have their networks, who all have their connections, who all right. have their, So we use that, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're able to raise through different, some people, of course, some people are better than others, but, you know, everybody has a network. So you just tap your network and that's how we're able to get funds. 
Right, right. Wonderful, wonderful. So speaking of networks, you also run a platform, which is Femme Freak. Yes, so yes. It's, it's all this, this continuum of women. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, somehow it all fits together. I don't know how it yes. happens. It all so that's what seems to happen as you yeah. kind of mature yeah. in your in your professional self. So so tell us about Femme Afrique and, okay. and how you Actually, you know it's Afrique Femme. I should correct you. I mean Afrique Femme. Yes. Afrique Femme, yeah. Yes. Afrique Femme, which means you know African women in English. Afrique Femme, mm-hmm. Africa, Africa uh, Femme women. So Afrique Femme is a platform. Afrique Femme exists since 2013, right? Okay. So and I recently I joined them and what I do is I help to run the platform. Okay. And I also host a show on Africa. Farm. It's called African Women mm-hmm. 2.0. Okay. Unfortunately, it's only in French. We're trying to see if we can do it in English. <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of people who tell us. I have friends, you know, when we when I post the videos on Facebook and Instagram, I have a lot of friends in the U.S. who tell me, "Wow, I love the way you guys look, but I can't understand a word." So <laughs> about, yeah, we're thinking about going that route, and then also even want to broaden it, you know, so that we can yes. interview women in English and all that. So. We're really thinking about that. But for now, it's only Francophone. And we interview different women, you know, women who are successful in their fields, women who are in all different fields and who, you know, who have a story to tell in a sense mm-hmm. and experience to share, because that really is the main purpose. It's this experience right. that they're sharing. You yes. know, in Africa, we lack models. We lack role models, mm-hmm. female role models. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, this is showing young African girls that, you know, you can do it. It's not impossible because, you know, yes, we have some women who have been to school, who have done, you know, higher education, but then we have some women who have not done higher education, but are successful. Like we had this comedian lady who came and she was telling, she was telling us, listen, my office is my house and my work tool is my phone and I do everything and I'm very successful. And she is very successful. This is a person with a million followers on Facebook who's able to generate revenue from her job. So it's just to say that things are changing. The world is changing. You know, it's a virtual world now. You know, Mm -hmm. we've been forced to accept that because of COVID. And Mm -hmm. it's a virtual world. And there's so much you can do. You know, you just have to. And this comes up again and again from all the women that we invite. From all the, I said, I'm sorry, I said women's. All the women (laughs) we invite is that, you know, you have to just believe in your dreams. And that's extremely important. Believe in yourself. Believe in your dreams. If you do what you love, the money will come. And, exactly. and that is something they all said it. You know, there was not a single woman who sat down who said, you know, I'm doing this job that I hate, but I'm making a lot of money. <laughs> you know, all of them are passionate about what they do. And that's yeah. how they're able to make money. Right. And mm-hmm. and basically they, they follow their dreams. And so that's mm-hmm. really, really important. And I think that's the message for young people now. You know, people write too much on how do I get to where they are now? No, focus on what you like to do. And see how you eventually can make money from that. But the important thing is to focus on something you love. Because when you love it too, you're not so much looking for the money. You're really doing it because you love it, right? You're not paid. You're not making so much money. But eventually, if you do it well enough, the money will come. And the the glory and the success. Yeah. And it's. I had a guest and she volunteered quite a bit before she fell into her profession. And so I think that letting women know it's okay not to get paid, like even volunteering, because the more you know, the better you will be at finding yourself, number one. So being able to do what you love helps you find yourself. Because I think people, so many young women are just lost because they're not allowing themselves to find themselves. Absolutely. And then it's because of that 
oh, but I just have to make money. And, you know, obviously circumstances. So that's why I love what you're doing with the Ilan Ba, because women have to be able to have the space, you know, having a place to send your child gives you some space to understand yourself. Having, you know, support network gives you the space to, you know, maybe dabble in something that you are not quite sure of, but will eventually bring you some returns because you actually love doing that. So I love when people give that advice Mm -hmm. and, consistently give that advice. So that's your series is, is wonderful. I've watched them. <laughs> it is a wonderful. Yes. And so just dub it, mm-hmm. just dub it subtitles because yeah, it looks beautiful. And these women are dynamic. And, you know, like you said, they're all walks, you know, there's women who are in the industry, women who are independent entrepreneurs. So I really recommend that. And again, folks, the show notes will have links to all of these, mm-hmm. these sites. So speaking of believing your dreams, this is my mindset hack question. So this is where I ask my guests, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. Me? I keep going. I'm like the energizer bunny, I swear. Ah, okay. <laughs> just, I really am like the energizer bunny. I just, I get up in the morning, I go, go, go. I never, and sometimes I feel like I need to sit down and take time to focus, but I just, not that it's difficult for me. But I feel like I, I'm a doer. Okay. I'm a doer. I'm a doer. Okay. I like to get things done, right? Okay. And that's what drives me in the morning. That's what drives me daily. That's what always driven. I mean, I've always been driven that way. It's I'm just need to do things. I can't just, you know how some people, they need to, I'm not, I don't meditate. <laughs> Maybe I should. Oh, okay. I don't, <laughs> I'm not that type of person. No, I have my calm moments, obviously. Yes. And I do uh-huh. a lot of that. What I do at night but I feel like it's not really meditating. It's really just doing, it's a laundry list of things to do. <laughs> but that's the way I just keep going. And, you know, I, I think I need to do more of, more of sitting down and focusing. And, but I just feel like life is just, you need to keep moving. Right. Oh, but that's, that's a mindset hack. Just keep moving. Keep that's moving. a, that, moving. that works too. Okay. Okay. I like that. I like that. I like that. Okay. So we're getting to the end of our conversation. I so appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure. So I want to ask you something more about not what you do, but who you are. So you said you keep moving, but what are some of the things that you're reading now? So are you a reader? Are you watcher? Are you a listener? I'm a reader and a watcher. Okay. Okay. So I'm a reader and a watcher. Unfortunately, I haven't had time to read so much. And you know, mm. it's funny because I had a friend, <laughs> I love my friend, my girlfriend, we started, she trained me when I started at Morning Press at the IMF. She was, and we're still in touch. She's Australian uh-huh. and she's back in Australia now. But she told me, you know, I mean, I was much younger than she was when I started. And she told me, you know, read now because once you have children, you will not have time to read anymore. <laughs> Ah, yeah. yeah. I I used to laugh about it, but now I realize that it's very true. Once you have children, you don't have as much time. Definitely. I agree. But I do read. But recently, I have have to be honest, I haven't read that much. The Mm -hmm. last book I read, I want to say, was a book from Venance Conant. Venance Conant is a journalist and a writer. He's Mm -hmm. Ivorian. And he wrote a book that really caught, I mean, I was really, I loved the book. I have to say, I mean, even the title was provocative. It was called, it's in French, but it says essentially, if the black man doesn't want to stand on his own two feet, then just let him fall. Hmm. Talk that's the title. That's the title. I promise you. Okay. Si le noir ne veut pas se tenir debout, laissez-le tomber. And what it really talked about is African mentality and how we need to change this post-colonialism 
mentality, mm. you know, of always waiting for aid, of always mm-hmm. waiting for people to help us. You know, you know how you say, um, la main tendue, you know, the outstretched hand where you're always waiting for someone to give you something. Yes. And he was saying that we have this mentality, this mentality is rampant in Africa and we need to get away from it. We need to be able to, to know and believe in ourselves. And we do so many yeah. great things. But then we always feel that, oh, we need aid from this country or that country, or we need money from this person or that. So he was saying we just need to be able to stand on our own two feet. Yes. And in that, he also says, you know, the systemic brainwashing that we got from colonialism, where, you know, you are told that, you know, Black is not beautiful. You know, your languages are savage languages. And, you know, all these different things that we were taught through, you know, years of oppression, right? Century, not years, centuries of oppression. He's saying we need to get away from that. We need to be more conscious. We need to love our culture. We need to love our music. We need to love our people. We need to love our colors. And, you know, he talks about all the little things that we do. We don't even realize, you know, you know, the skin bleaching, the even, you know, the hair, you know, the clothing. He was saying something that's so true. Why is it in Africa that we wear suits? I mean, it's not adapt to the weather. It's so simple. Yes, very simple things. Right? Yes. don't even think about it because it's just been... You know, it's been handed down to us and we just continue doing it without even right. thinking about it. And so, exactly. you know, so some of those, those are some of the things that he was saying. And the reason why he, he said he snapped a picture. I think he was, I can't remember what country it was in. I think it was in Benin. And he snapped mm-hmm. a picture of latrines, right? Mm-hmm. He was traveling mm-hmm. in country. He was going on some, you know, he's a journalist. So he was there for a sure. research. And so he snapped a picture. And on the latrines, it said, Oh, the people of this city, thanks. I don't know if it was the German people or, you know, the, oh, or whatever. These latrines. Mm-hmm. And he said it shocked him and it stayed with him. And this happened many, many years before he wrote the book. And so mm-hmm. it shocked him so much that he snapped a picture and he said, you know what? I'm going to eventually come back to a story where I'll, I'll include this picture. Because yeah. for him, it was shocking that, you know, latrines. I mean, we can't build our own latrines, you know. And so for him, that was just, you know, that triggered this whole book that he wrote eventually. And, okay. so, you know, it's just this mindset that he's saying, you know, we really need to get out of. And I agree 100 percent. And this is another reason why, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. I'm happy doing Afrikam and the show because we feature African entrepreneurs and not just, mm-hmm. you know, the, of course, we have the guests, but we also mm-hmm. give the guests a gift. And the Yes, exactly. Yes. That is made from by an African entrepreneur who's based either abroad or here, but it's an African business owner who made it. And sometimes things are made locally. We even uh, featured a Ghanaian lady. She does candles and things like that. You know, so we're really into showcasing what Africa does best. And we do so many great things, but we just, we're just so used to using what comes from abroad and liking what others do that we forget that we ourselves do wonderful things and we really need to put that forward more. And that's why these platforms are so important. So nice, nice. Okay, so we'll we'll put that book in the show notes. I'm sure it's been translated. I would I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. And yeah. then half of a but, yellow sun, of course. That was oh, yes. That yes. was my favorite. Okay. That was one of my favorites that I read okay. years ago, but it was it just, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I knew nothing about Biafra and Biafran war and all that. I didn't uh-huh. you know, I had heard of course of Nigeria and the you know right. leaders and the whole Biafra all that, but I didn't know the impact, right? I didn't even know yeah. it had become a republic and, you know, they wanted, so it was, right. it was great. It's, and I love history. I love history, yes. and African history. I love it. So it was, yeah. it was a great book. And the love story. So that was as also- well, As well, as well. Yeah. 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 As well. Yeah. 
Yeah, wonderful. Okay. So any last words for our listeners today? Well, first of all, Florence, I want to say thank you. Thank you for having me on this show because it's yes. very important. And I, yes. you know, I, like I said, I try to support everything African around me these days. And I'm yes. so proud of you for doing this. I think it's a great, I mean, I was listening to the other speakers. I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm not up to the level <laughs> of other speakers. But I guess all of us, we bring something to the table. In yes, we're all elevating us. Exactly. Love exactly. Mm-hmm. What I want to say, I think what's important to remember is that I mean, I don't know if I want to say, I mean, I, I love this global citizenship that you mm-hmm. place on your shows. You know, these women who are like, you, you sent me something, the Rwandan, Ugandan lady, and then the mm-hmm. other lady who's African-American, but traveled to Brazil and worked in Africa. I, mm-hmm. I love hearing those stories because it's really, you know, that it shows us that, you know, as Africans, we have so many different identities, we mm-hmm. do so many different things in so many different ways. And so I want to say, Africans, let's continue to do these things, but let's be proud of ourselves. Let's talk more. Let's put ourselves out there. Let's be proud of ourselves, proud of our products. You know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm not bashing anybody else, right? Because, you know, but I just feel that we need to come back to ourselves, right? Yes. Because we've stayed away from ourselves too long and Mm -hmm. we need to come back to ourselves. We need to really start appreciating Africa and Africans and the work that we do. And trying to make mm-hmm. it better too, because, you know, of course, some things we do, we don't do so well. So how do we improve it? How do we mm-hmm. really bring that professionalism to Africa? And for me, that's what's important. And that's what we need to do. Okay. I love this show because it, it allows us to speak about these, these different topics. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope to get back to Cote d'Ivoire sometime yes. soonish. Yes. But not before naked. Our friendly neighbor. I know, I know. And I could drive. I don't have to fly. So maybe that might be exactly. But I I really want to go to your other home in Senegal because Mm -hmm. that that I feel is in my future. I want to live there. I want to spend time there. I just I'm feeling it. So we shall see. Yes, yes. In any case, let me know if you need any contacts, any whatever I have. Oh, yes. You got deep roots there. You will love Senegal. Because you know the culture in Senegal, you know, we were even talking about that because you know, we do a show and shop. We do like pop-up sale that we did last December. And we were looking at designers and I'm telling you, I mean, of course, Nigeria, without a doubt, but that's just, you know, numbers, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, you can't get away from numbers. But yeah. Senegal, really, in terms of the work that they do, I think they're ahead of the curve in terms of, especially, I mean, compared to Ivory Coast, I yeah. mean, designers, professional designers, they sure. they're really, you know, they're really out there. They do a lot of beautiful things. They you know, so you'll love it there. I mean, culturally, it's very rich, right? And they're very close to their tradition. So, you know, you're right. going to have to learn that Wolof. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I, I, I have a whole, um, I follow um, a Facebook, like Wolof today. I mean, not a Facebook, uh, Instagram uh-huh. account yeah. that has daily Wolof yeah. saying. Yeah. So I'm picking up small, small. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, they don't play. They really are into their Wolof and they just, you know, they just, I mean, but I love that part about the Senegal because, you know, Ivory Coast is very westernized, but Senegal yes. is westernized, but it's remain as well. It's, it's remain traditional as well. Right. Right. So, right. Which I can definitely appreciate. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Love it. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. Excellent. Okay, listeners. So this has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I want to thank my guests once again. And I want to remind everyone that you can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at www.glocalcitizenspod.com. You can catch us on Apple, Google, Amazon, everywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. And please share, subscribe, listen, learn. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.